I'm excited. I can't tell you that I, we get to start a new book today, the book of Exodus. This is my favorite book. And so I'm excited about this. So if you would please open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, and we get to study. I hope you will find that uh, the book of Exodus will be your favorite book as well. It's just a, just a treasure trove of information of, of truth uh, that applies to our lives today as, as believers, as children of God. So let's just check verse 1 real quick here and we'll set the stage because it's starting up each book you know, if you've been with me for a while, each time we start a, a new book we give you history and some background, some context so you can take a lot of notes for those who are pencil pushers, you can take your notes and then, uh, and then that way you can, we'll get into it. We're going to take chapter 1 today. Yes, we made it through the first service, all 22 verses, so hang on. And we're going to have communion, so hang on. It'll take about two hours, but it'll be fine. You'll just be totally fine here today. So Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. There we go. We're started. I can talk for the next two hours on that alone, but we'll, we'll get into some meat here. So the Greek Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate versions of the Old Testament assign this title, Exodus, to the second book of Moses because of the departure of Israel from Egypt, and it is a dominant historical fact that we find here in this book. We also know that the Jewish rabbis called this book Exodus, or they called it the book of names, based upon the very first verse of Exodus here, these are the names. So these are the names is actually the name Exodus of what it refers to as the Exodus. That's where we get the, uh, this book title. And because it opens up with the list of the names of Jacob or Israel who brought their families to Egypt to escape the famine of Canaan and when we study Genesis chapter 46. Now God gave his people to accomplish on this earth three main purposes. God gave the children of Israel first to be the witness to bear the living, the true and living God himself. They were to be a witness of this true and living God that they follow. Second, they were, they were brought about by God to bring about the holy scriptures to us. And thirdly, to bring the Savior into the world. Three things that he was using the nation of Israel to, for his purpose. Now the Old Testament is God's continued story of his great program of salvation to mankind. That he announced originally, if you remember, in, he originally announced it to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He then again re-announced that program of salvation, that plan of salvation, in, uh, to Abraham in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And this explains why the Hebrew text of Exodus begins here in verse 1 of chapter 1 with the word, now, or in the original Greek language, the word should be and. It should say, and these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. For God continued his story of Genesis right into Exodus. It's a, it's a flow from one book into another, but from his perspective, it's one continuous story, and we need to continue to look at that as such as well. God's wonderful story not only starts here with just some names of God's people, the nation of Israel, the start of the nation of Israel, but the story doesn't stop there, as you know. It started in Genesis with Adam and Eve. It comes to the birth of the nation of Israel. But then as we continue through the scriptures, it doesn't stop there because God's wonderful story finally led to the coming of Jesus to earth, the Messiah, and his death on the cross. And it 
won't end until God's people go to heaven and see Jesus on the throne. And so we're going to see that continuous story all the way from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. And that's why we study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and we cover all 66 books. Now, we started in 2011, and we still haven't completed all the books because we just hang on there because we want to not miss one bit of the truth that God has put in print for you and I. Amen? That's why we study it. That's why we meditate on it day and night. We share it with those who listen. <laughs> we even share it to some people who don't want to listen. They've <laughs> been sharing the gospel, the truth that can set them free because they've set us free. What is freedom? But the freedom to choose to live after God. That's the freedom that he gives us. So many people get squirrely today and they're thinking and they think, oh, I've got the freedom to live however I want to live. That's not true. You know that. We have the freedom to choose to live for him or choose not to live for him. Who do you dedicate your life to? That's what we get to choose. Prior to our Savior, we didn't have that choice. Did you know that? That's why we love Jesus. Because God made a way for us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by that relationship with him. Now, don't lose track of that because some get a little squirrely. Oh, you studied the Old Testament? Absolutely, because we want the, the entire teaching of the Word of God, and we want to see the, start, the beginning of the story, don't we? And we saw in Genesis this tremendous story, and now we continue the story here in Exodus. Now, the theme of the book of Exodus is deliverance or redemption. And if there's a theme of deliverance or redemption, what are you being delivered from or redeemed from? And if there's something you need to be delivered from, that is sin, there must be a deliverer or a redeemer. And the redeemer is Jesus Christ himself. Now God uses men and women in the scriptures to help to help people out of that bondage they find themselves in. And so we're going to see that today, as we start the book of Exodus, we're going to see uh, such a man, that the Lord God raised up a man named Moses for his people in the growing persecution that his people is find, are finding themselves in. And I'm going to give you a couple of verse, key verses for the book of Exodus. The first one is Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And this key verse for this book is found in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. And you can actually 6 through 8, mostly, but let me just read verse 6 here. It says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out, of, uh, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So as we take a look at those, those verses alone, it kind of sets an understanding and a tone for us for this book of Exodus. Now who wrote the book of Exodus? It's really kind of, Sad, maybe, but comical at times where you'll hear all these great theologians with all these initials and PhDs and MSCs and whatever else degree they, they think they got that says they know it all. And they'll tell you that Moses is not the one that wrote this book. But I assure you, it's pretty simple. I'm a simple kind of guy as you get to know me. I'm pretty simple. I, use, I read the scriptures and I use the scriptures to, to support the scriptures. I, I don't... I don't go outside the scriptures, right? You, know, you understand that. So we're going to do the same thing here. Who wrote the book of Exodus? Well, let me give you the key verses so that you've ever come across someone who says this. You can help them simply teach them the word of God, right? So the first one here is, is 
that Moses followed God's instructions because he says in Exodus chapter 24, verse 4, he wrote all the words of the Lord. What did he write down? All the words of the Lord. The Lord gave him words. He wrote it down. That's how we got the scriptures. You got that, right? You're all with me, right? But this is what settles it for me. When Jesus speaks, I believe it. And he says in Mark chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus states that Exodus was written by Moses. That settles it for me. I don't know why you could go outside of that. You can go back and I'll give you a couple more. John chapter 5, verse 46 and 47 also emphasizes that Moses is the writer by the empower of the Holy Spirit writes down the words of the Lord. It's simple, straightforward. Now, Moses' life is an interesting thing. His life is divided into three 40-year periods. Can you imagine your life described in three 40-year periods? Praise the Lord, you're that old. Again, praise the Lord, you're that old, right? But what, what happened in this man's life? First, he was raised up the first 40 years in Pharaoh's palace in Egypt. All of the resources of the known powerful world power nation of Egypt was there at his fingertips and all the best schoolings and food and exercise, everything a man would want to have available to him to be able to raise up and, and, and have power and positions and everything. Raised up for 40 years in this high gluten place. Because Egypts were very prominent, very, very elitist type mentality. Because they were a world power. Had all the finer things of life available to them. But then the second part of, or third part of his life was the next 40 years of his life. So at age 40, going into the next 40 years, he's then taken by God. And we'll see here in the scriptures later on as we get there, uh, 40 years in the desert of Median. God takes him out into the desert to work on him and to train him up. <laughs> yeah, this is, those are what we call DED, desert experience degree that he's going to get. Where God takes him and isolates him and he comes, gets his full attention and says, this is what you need to learn and this is what I need you to do for me. And he trains you up and it took 40 years to train up, to prepare Moses to do a great work for God. And what was that? The last 40 years. At age 80, God says, now you're ready to do the great thing I've created you to do. And that is the next 40 years of his life, he will be the leader of Israel, of God's nation. Oh, how many times? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting my, you know, beautiful golden age of whatever that may be. I've been doing serving the Lord for many years. Let the young people start serving. That is not godly thinking. Did you know that? It is not about your age. It's about being faithful and consistently faithful for him and doing what he's called you to do to the very last breath where he then takes you right into the presence of his arms. Amen? There's no such thing as retirement. Not in the ministry. Us doing what God's called you to do. It, that's just worldly thinking. That's not godly thinking. You just get to go where God guides. And you never know. You might come to a point where you're at age 63 and God says, pack up, we're moving over, we're going to start a new work in your life. And are you faithful to do it? Those who love God will do it. It's a beautiful way of living for God. So we see here that, yes, Egypt tried to train this man up this, in, the, in, the, in the environment of the Temple of the Sun that Egypt was known for. And all the gods that they had available to them did not prepare Moses in one bit. All of the college and all the universities and all the degrees and all the prestige did not train up Moses to do the work that God wanted to do. Now, that's a reminder for you and I. 
That if you think you come in with all of the titles and resources and all this background and think that that is all going to be perfect for God's purposes, then you have to quickly stop yourself and realize, no, God prepares a person to do the good work. That God is going to raise you up. And yes, he may take you for a period of time into a DED, a desert experience degree. I hope it doesn't take 40 years for God to get to, 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 to do a work that he wants to do in my life. And I hope it doesn't take that long. But whatever it takes, it's going to be good because it's going to be prepared to do what God's called you to do. And that is part of his plan. Amen? So we see that the end of Moses' life, though, and we'll finally get to it, that God's judgment came upon Moses for his anger and disrespect toward God. And we see that in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. But the mercy and the grace of God is also shown because at, in Matthew 17, 3, we see centuries later, he appeared to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. What a blessing that God gave to Moses to witness. Now, when was this written, the book of Exodus? Exodus covers the period of time during which God freed the Hebrew people from servitude, from that slavery there in Egypt, and then also all the way through the wandered, wandering time, a period of 40 years in the wilderness. And at the same time, during his 40-year tenure as that, that Israeli, the, the Israel's leader here, the Jewish leaders here, uh, beginning at the age of 80, and he ends his life at the age of 120. Moses wrote this scripture, the, the words of the Lord, down on paper, the second book of the five books of the Torah, or the law of Moses. And more specifically, he did that at the end or after the Exodus was done. We see from a, a time period after the Exodus was completed, he wrote that just probably right after Genesis. And it puts us right about the time of one. Uh, 1445 to 1405 B.C. is when this uh, was written. Now from a historical perspective, it's God's timing. The Exodus marked the end of a period of oppression for Abraham's descendants. We noticed that when it started in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, and constituted the beginning of the fulfillment of, of the covenant promise he gave to Abraham, if you remember there, and to his descendants, and how God was going to bless that nation and it was going to prosper and be moved into the promised land that God has set aside for them. But they would become a great nation. They would grow and large. Now that took faith because it was just Abraham and his little clan of people. And a promise he was going to be a great nation and a promise of land that he did not own at that point. But the story continued. As we look at the book of Genesis and going into Exodus, there's a, about a three and a half century gap of time. About three or four hundred years of of story here that is unfolding of that nation of Israel. And we see that in Exodus chapter 15, verse 13, that Abraham, the seed of Abraham, would spend 400 years in the land that was not theirs, which is Egypt is what they're referring to. Now, we can't be dogmatic about the patriarchal period of time and down to... But you look at the range, we're going to hear some numbers from 430 or around 400, what the scripture says, to the 350, and the, just hold on to it. Just take some notes, you go back and continue to do your Berean studies of your scriptures, and God will bring it together for you. But as we go through here, chapter 1, follow along in the very beginning, we'll set the stage, and we'll see what the Lord is going to speak to your heart about today. But it says here in verse 1, now... The original Greek, you should see the word and, really is and. And these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Who are these sons? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Now, if you look at those first six names, they were the children of Leah. 
Remember, he, he, he got himself in some trouble, remember? <laughs> and his brother got a little, uh, I'm going to kill you, brother, uh, a moment because he got deceived. And so mama and his mom took his little mama's boy and said, uh, you better run up to see Uncle Laban. You got to get out of town. Remember the story? He gets up there and he falls in love with who? Leah? Rachel. But Uncle Laban did what? Did a switcheroo, fast switcheroo at the wedding day. And that night, he ends up sleeping with Leah. Now Leah, if we know in the scripture, was the most unloved. She felt the most unloved. She was definitely clearly the most unloved. Was not the one. But look what God did. He took this the most unloved and became the most blessed. She had the most children, and she was blessed with a child named Judah, which was designed by God to be the lineage, the tribe of Judah, who would bring about what? Or who? The Savior of the world. See how God can take something, a life that you may feel like you're unloved? Or people even tell you you're not loved. But that matters nothing to what God is going to can and do through your life according to his purpose and plan. I love the assurance of God's love on someone he's created for his great purpose. And so we see here the first six were Leah. And then we see Benjamin. Now Benjamin comes from which, which wife? Rachel. But Rachel had two children. Benjamin and Joseph. Joseph's not mentioned here, but we'll know why. Then there's Dan and Naphtali, who's from Bilhah, one of the maidservants. And then Gad and Asher, who was from Zilpah, the other maidservant. And all of those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. So that's why Joseph wasn't noted coming into the land of Egypt, because he was already there. And then, of, of course, a period of time has elapsed. A nation has been growing now over, over probably 250 years now of growing and prospering and, and building and babies after babies after babies. And then all of a sudden we find here in verse 6, Joseph died and all of his brothers and all the, that generation. That, that generation being when they first came into the land of Egypt and everything that was going on through in and through Joseph's life and his, in, in, his, in the tribe or the clan at that time. Now the scriptures here note that there's this, again, about this 430 year time period of the story of the Exodus beginning from Genesis into Exodus going from a large family and, and then this crucial time in God's plan of the ages to migrate that family, that clan from, the, uh, from the, their land of Canaan into Egypt. Now you remember when we studied Genesis, why did he do that? Now initially on the outward view, oh, it's because it was a great famine. They had to get out of there and find some food. That was the purpose. No, that was just that was just what the tool he used to move his people out of there. Remember, for that nation to grow and be a prosperous and 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 keep that lineage of of uh, of the Jewish nation, they could not be intermarrying with the, the, the Gentiles or the pagans in that land. And that was too vulnerable for them to do that. So God had to create the famine to get them up and to move them to Egypt so that they would be in a culture where they would not intermingle with marriage. Because the Egyptians would not intermingle or to, to, to start intermarriage because they saw the, those people as lower they were, they, they were not, they were beneath us. We would never intermarry with that. that we, we wouldn't want to, you know, we're, we're Egyptians. We're, we're elitists here. So God knew how he needed to place you at a important time in your life for the purpose for you to grow as a, as a nation here. But he does it in such a unique way as we know the story. How do you get dad to move the entire family to a foreign land that he doesn't want to go? Through your children. And so what did he do? He ended up having to get to a point where his one son, Joseph, ends up getting uh, 
<laughs> sold off by his brothers. Such a loving family. Um, and not just sold off. He, they were going to kill him initially, remember? But God pre preserved Joseph because Joseph was going to be the vehicle that God was going to do a great work through. And he was sold off to the slave traders who happened to be going where? To Egypt. And then God gave Joseph um, spiritual gifts of wisdom and administration to become one of the second most powerful in all of Egypt. Where Pharaoh came to him and said, what do we do and how do we do it? To a point where God even gave him the ability to read the dreams of Pharaoh so that they would bring that trust and understanding that God, that Joseph worshipped, was the God that they were going to follow to get him through that troubled, troubled times. And I hope that speaks to us as well, right? I hope when you find yourself in great persecution, growing persecution, or famine in your life, that you're choosing to go to God and let the God that you worship give you wisdom and direction of what to do. Not to the world. Not to your best buddy. Your best buddy's in the same condition you are. <laughs> you're, 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 you need to go to God and then tell your buddy, come along, I'm following God, you need to come follow me too. That's what you need to do. I know you want to go back to talk to mommy and daddy, but God is your heavenly father you really need to be listening to. Unless your, heavenly your, your earthly father follows your heavenly father, then that's not a bad person to go get counsel from. <laughs> Pretty simple, straightforward, right? But he says there's 70 descendants here of Jacob that entered here. And we see that 70 souls were coming into Egypt. But some of you are going to say to me, well, no, there were 75. How do we know that? Because Acts chapter 7, verse 14 says there were 75. And if you remember, if you studied, it's the 70 plus what's not noted here in Exodus is Joseph, his wife, two children, and Jacob, making the 75 total in Egypt at this point in time. But remember, at the end of here in verse 6, they've all died off. Why is that important? Because people forget history. People forget to tell the next generation what God had done in the previous generation. And when you don't continue to tell people of the next generation and the next generation, grandma and grandpas, you better be telling your children about the things of God. Help the next generation to know the truths of God. Or they will put their eyes on the world and completely forget what God did. It reminds me, as parents, how important it is for you and I to speak to our children and let your children see God working in and through your life. And that you, they hear you giving praises to God in all things. And that you, you, they can hear and see the, the down and the valley moments. That they can see how God was right there with you, mom and dad, and bringing you through those valleys. And you were by faith walking with him. Because those are what, God's, what your children are going to remember when they leave the household and they find themselves in the valley. They're going to go back to what they understand. And they're going to say, what did mom and dad do in this situation? And if they didn't see a mom and dad praying and in the word of God every day and seeking after God and worshiping God and going to church, do you think that's what they're going to do? They will choose to do what the world teaches them to do. So I have to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, if you have children, I don't care what the age is, you must be an example to your children and to your grandchildren to say, who do you follow? Who do you trust? Who do you worship? Who do you turn to? Who do you go to for the wisdom and understanding to live this life, a godly life, until he takes us home? Because if you don't, and now I'm going to speak to you children, you must choose to listen and to watch your godly parents. And if you don't have godly parents, you need to come and you need to take responsibility and you need to know who your Heavenly Father is and your Savior. Because 
you're held accountable. If you're in this room, you're age 12 and older, and I see and I believe the scripture is when you're at the age of accountability and you hit that puberty time frame, which is about 12, you are held accountable. That's what I believe, regardless of what your parents do or don't do. So I want to encourage you, keep showing up regardless of how you feel, and let me teach you the word until you are able to learn and God teach you by the Holy Spirit as you grow and mature. Just keep showing up regardless of how you feel. Amen? Okay, I'm off that one. We're going to move on. So here's the descendants. And these descendants, these small little 75 people grow, as we will see in the scriptures, over to two to three million people that God is going to move from Egypt back into Canaan. Verse 7, let's move on here. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and grew exceedingly and mighty. And the land was filled with them. Amazing. We even see in Genesis 47, 27, what was going to take place. What was going to take place? So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen. And they had, had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Did that happen? Yes. It did happen exactly what God said was going to happen when it was just Abraham and his little family. And now, years later, it's exactly what God said it was going to happen, regardless of what you think and what you think and feel. The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly. So if you even take that, what Abraham's promise is, and go back to just Jacob, think about it. It was just five in his family that God used to bring a great nation, his nation. He went up there to Uncle Laban's and he found Rachel and Leah and these two, <laughs> and two uh, maidservants. I don't think he was thinking he was going to get all of that, but God knew he needed to have all those, all those wives. You know, God's wisdom. Um, for 250 years, they grew and grew. Now we know in the scriptures that in the book of Numbers, there were 600 men from the age of about 20 to 50 in this group. If you take that and you multiply that out, and all these mathematicians and wise people can do this, and I don't do it, I just I know what they've been studying. But these 600,000 men plus the women and children brings you about 2 to 3 million people. Amen? So now we see that's happening. So why is that the big deal? Why should we be celebrating, right? Why growing persecution? Because you're a nation that's growing and prosperous and going and doing God's work, doing in God's purpose and plan. Well, we'll find out here next. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king, a new pharaoh over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. Oh, time has gone by. God had used Pharaoh in I mean, Joseph and the Pharaoh at that time's life and the entire nation of Egypt, everyone knew this man and his entire family that was tucked away up in Goshen. Time has grown and passed by and you have all these people now. But the leadership of the government, the new Pharaoh, did not know Joseph or any of the story that took place. Interesting, eh? And verse 9, and he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Uh-oh. There's a little bit of uh, envy, maybe? Fear? Insecurity? Fear. Why? Well, you're, you're the head of the government. And a minor, minority group within your nation is growing at a faster rate than your Egyptian part of the country. And fear starts setting in because a minority is going to now be the majority and more mightier than your own people. Amazing what fear and insecurity that can bring about within a government. Because you'll lose control of your, of your nation. Now, it's interesting. So what does he do with that fear and insecurity? He says in verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up 
out of the land. You know, they're getting so mighty and so so resourceful and, and so, look at all those men, man. They're strong men. They're, they're, they're the hard workers working the land. They're, they're in good shape. Can we take them if there's a war? What happens if our enemies, the Hittites above us, who hate us, us Egyptians, what happens if they join forces with them and they come against us and to wipe us out? That can't happen. We're going to have to deal shrewdly with it. We're not going to give them the freedoms that they used to enjoy up there in Goshen. We're going to have to deal shrewdly with these people because there's way too much prosperity going on. So what does he do? Verse 11, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities of Pithom and Ramses. So he says, we got to do something about this. We can't just sit back and let this happen. So why don't we put taskmasters, really taskmasters, those who are now, because they're doing the work, they're doing all the labor, we're going to put some really, ta we're going to make them so exhausted and so suppressed, just trying to make a living, to suppress them, to make them as poor and living as they can, where they don't feel like they can afford to build a family. They can't feel, have the comforts of have luxury to actually have time to be able to produce a baby. So we'll look, just be a taskmaster. And we'll slow them down in their growth and their prosperity. We'll make them poor. Hardworking people that can barely make a living. And not only that, but we're going to have them actually build us military outposts or supply areas for our army just in case. We'll have them build it for us, but we're really going to use that just in case we have to use it against them here in these two cities of Pithom and Ramses. They were set into slave labor. We know that historically they built many cities and monuments in Egypt. They did not build the pyramids. Those were built much earlier. But we know there was some forced labor going on there somewhere in the estimation of that slavery for them was somewhere that lasted from 284 years, give or take. But, verse 12, but, and I, we always love this moment here, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So, Okay. Pharaoh's sitting here going, what's, we gotta, we gotta, you know, we just make sure they were working hard. We're just kind of making, you know, putting the suppression on them to make them as poor and, and, and taskmasters and make them there. And it just, that's not working here. We'll intensify a little bit. Plan A is to intensify it here a little bit. And because we're, the more we're not giving them the freedoms they used to have, they're still multiplying and growing. So we've got to come up with this. So what does they do? Verse 13, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, cruelty, or with hardship, that word rigor means. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field and all their, all their service in which they made them serve was with rig, uh, rigor. So plan A, we're going to turn them into slaves and we're going to work them to the point where they have no freedom in regards to what they get to do and not to do. That's plan A of the government. We'll make them poor, then we'll make them slaves. We'll work them so hard for us that they won't even know what their, he their head's spinning. Because the more we do something, the more they seem to multiply and grow. But remember, this was part of God's plan. All this growing persecution on the nation of Israel was part of God's plan. God said he's going to bring his people through this pain and suffering. 
because it was like a, a child in a, wo- a, a woman's womb. It's protected there. It's, it's, it's protected and, and always guarded because he needed to guard the nation of Israel away from the pagan world till there was no intermarriage. Until the delivery, until deliverance is then needed and it's, the timing was perfect, that nation had to stay in, in, in Egypt. And so what we find here is now we're getting to the point where the labor pains are happening. (laughs) Pain and suffering is coming. And the deliverance is going to take place regardless if you like it or not. It's going to happen and the, the body of the nation of Israel has got to go back to the land of Canaan. And that is going to happen. And that needs to happen. And it's going to go because God is now putting the pressure of persecution on the people to rise up and to bring about the change that it needs to take place. So the growth in the face of growing persecution is very consistent, as you know, as you study the Word of God, is a very consistently part of the story of God's people throughout all the ages. The more they are persecuted, the Jewish people, and afflicted, the more affliction that the world brings upon them, the more they grow. And it's happened then, and it's happening still today. But they made their lives, these Jewish people, their lives bitter with hard bondage. That brings us to a point of what? The Passover. That God gave to the people, and as they do Passover, what do they do in the middle of that Passover? They take the herbs And they take it because it's bitter to remind them of their bondage in Egypt. There's a principle in Isaiah 54, 17 that says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And the wickedness of the Egyptians could hurt the children of Israel, but could never defeat God's plan for the nation of Israel. Regardless of all these smart people think. It will not ever happen. So what happened? Plan A is not working, people. He's telling his people, plan A is not working, so what? we got to go to plan B. So what's plan B? Verse 15. 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was uh, Shifra, and the, other name, uh, and the name of the other was Pooh. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Now, we shouldn't expect there was only two midwives (laughs) trying to deliver all the babies of all these Jewish people here. Now, we don't know if it was Jewish women who were midwives delivering or was it Egyptian midwives who were delivering the babies for the Hebrews I lean to the fact that they were actually Hebrew midwives there and they were ahead of the Hebrew I'm sorry the uh, union of midwives is what I believe these two are that he's coming to the ones who are two midwives or overseeing all the midwives, the union, and says, uh, Union, we're going to use you for my purpose to keep me in power and, and suppress these other people. Nothing new to the sun these days. And because we couldn't, and even in slavery and suppression and deport and, and, and beating them and physical, that didn't work. So we're going to go to an outside organization and try to come after to try to take out. A, a generation of people through killing babies. Satan worked back then the same way that Satan works today through the abortion industry. You, you know the history, right, of the abortion industry? I'll just choose one, the Planned Parenthood. That was started, if you go back in its documented history, they started to suppress the growing minority population in of the cities. Satan's work. Nothing new under the sun. And so we see he, this Pharaoh, uses plan B. I'm just going to use someone else to actually try to take out those babies. 
Just kill him. If it's a boy, just kill him before the... Now, was it in, coming in the womb? How, when did they determine? It was a baby. Killed a baby. In or out of that womb. How they did it, we don't, I don't know. But they knew that it was a way to do it. So what happened? What did they do? Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. They choose rightly. They did not choose what the government was telling them. They choose to follow where, if there's conflict with the word of God, to follow God. Do you know that applies to us today as well? If the government at any point tells us to do something that conflicts with the word of God, we go with the word of God. We go with God. We fear God more than man. You know, it's interesting. We see it in Acts 4.19. Peter is confronted with the same challenge, don't you remember? He's confronted by the civil authorities. And what is, how does he respond? He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or more than to God, you judge. Who am I supposed to? Are you telling me I'm supposed to listen to you versus God? Are you kidding me? The God of the universe? I'm not going to go against the God of the universe. Not going to happen. Even though there's tremendous fear you know in those women of those, those mid, uh, midwives. You knew there was fear because the power of Pharaoh could take their lives. It did not matter. It doesn't matter. They knew where they stood with God. Now, we understand in Romans 13, verses 1 through 5, that we are to obey the government and honor the civil uh, the civil rulers that God appoints in, in positions. But we are never called to put the government in place of God. Never. Therefore, that means if the government goes against the word, you must choose God and not the government. Verse 18. Plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. So what is plan C now? It gets more intense and more per growing persecution gets very wicked. Look at what happens. So the king of Egypt called the for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the maidservant said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he, God, provided households for them. Let's stop right there. Ooh, you're getting called in front of Pharaoh. Can you imagine? He didn't kill the ladies. Interesting. I'm surprised that he didn't, you didn't obey me, you didn't kill him. I don't know why, but either way, God had a hand of protection upon them, no doubt in my mind, for following God. And that refreshes my mind to say, God, if I'm going against the, civil, the government because I'm going to follow your word and trust in you, your hand of protection will be upon me. And he will be upon you to do what is right and follow him and not man. But notice that, that these midwives are coming to him. And yes, even after plan A and plan B, they still grew as a nation, mighty and multiplied and just incredible. And then because of the step of faith of the midwives, because they took a step of faith to follow God and choose to listen and obey God and not man, God rewarded, not only protected these women, but rewarded them and gave them households for them. Because in that day, maidservants, or not maidservants, uh, midwives, were those who did not have their own babies. They were dedicated to just deliver babies. God says, no, no, I'm going to bless you with children. Because you know children are a blessing. Did you know that? When God gives you children, it is a blessing. So he turns around and blesses these faithful, obedient women with their own children. Praise the Lord for these ladies. 
right? Now plan C, and this is where we'll finish on chapter 1, verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall, you shall save alive. So people go different directions on what this truly means. Very simple, what I believe, this is where I believe what the scripture is saying, is that Pharaoh wrote a law of the land telling all the people, all the Egyptians, everyone knew the law of the land now. Before it was just, hey, taskmasters, the bosses of the companies, you know, the bosses over the laborers, just suppress them, make them poor, make them struggle, they can't have a baby, they're just not going to feel like having a baby, they can't afford to have a baby. That didn't work. Okay, what organization who's kind of close to him could come in and take those babies, boys out? That didn't work. I'm going to write and change the law of the land that says those boys must be killed. How? What does it say? Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Egyptians, anybody, if you don't, if I find out that you have not taken that boy of that Hebrew boy and thrown that boy into the water, you're going against the law. That means you're going to die. Now, some commentators believe he got so irrational, so much fear, that that law applied to both the Egyptians and the Hebrews. But I believe it's, it's, in staying in context, it's really, it's the Hebrew boys. He's just getting the entire nation of, of the Egyptians to help him through a law that says anyone who's harboring a boy, a baby boy of a Hebrew, it, you're going against the law. And now you'll pay the consequences. So we see here, because of this, we find that there this man who's become irrational out of fear of losing control, fear of not being the head of this country that he was ruling. And as Pharaoh said less people, God said more. When, God, when Pharaoh said stop these people, God said, nope, we're going forward, steam, forward, steam ahead. Now if it was just between Pharaoh and, and the Israel people, the people of Israel would, would, not, would not succeed. Because the army of Pharaoh and the, the resources were so powerful, big government over these people, there would no way would survive. But the Israel people were not by themselves, were they? God was fighting their battle. God was on their side. And God was leading to do what he was going to do with this nation. They had nothing to fear. Because God is in control. And so we see here, plan C is not going to work. And because of this, we will find that they'll continue to grow. And now they need to be delivered out of this growing persecution. So he raises up a man named Moses to be the deliverer of guiding them out of Egypt into the wilderness. And that is a whole other part of the story you have to come back for. Amen?